understanding the doctrine of Christ and strengthening our testimony is a labor that will bring real joy and satisfaction. We need to consistently study the words of Christ as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Studying is then another essential key to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer and scripture study go hand in hand. They work together for our benefit. This is the process that the Lord has established. To feast means more than to taste. To feast means to savor. We savor the scriptures by studying them in a spirit of delightful discovery and faithful obedience. When we feast upon the words of Christ, they are embedded in the fleshy tables of the heart. Ruth in 1 Samuel. And Ruth is kind of an interesting story because she is not an insider. She's a Moabite. And yet the book is named after her because uh, she becomes an Israelite. Well, it's this guy, Elimelech. Elimelech. (laughs) So there's a famine, and so he... He takes his family to Moab. Yep. And I don't know if while he's there, his sons marry, and one of those is Ruth. And then it seems I didn't I didn't understand who died, but it seems like the male died, like the grandfather and the father. You know, and yeah. so it was Naomi and Ruth and, and Orpah. So yeah, it it says in verse three that Elimelech. Uh, died and then later in verse 5 Malon and Chilion died also both of them and the woman was left with her two sons and her was left of her two sons and her husband so kind of like the grandmother and the daughters-in-law yeah the the mother the mother-in-law and the daughters-in-law that's a better way of saying it and she basically tells him you're free to go like don't don't worry about your Your families so you can have a life. And then she also tells him, I'm not going to bear any other sons. And if I did, it wouldn't be fair for you to wait for them to grow up to then marry them. In <laughs> right. the manual, talks quite a bit about how in those times, women were not allowed to own property without a husband or work or do anything really meaningful without a husband. And like widows were worse off than anyone else. Right. And now all of these three women are widows. And... Two of them are outsiders. Uh, and, and honestly, um, uh, Naomi and Orpah are probably young enough that they could go back to their homelands and find somebody else and or at least be with their families and be supported there. But I think what that means for Naomi is that she's basically going to be a beggar all her yeah. life. The rest of her life, she's not going to have anything. She's not going to she can't go and say, hey marry me and I'll I'll give you a son. You know, that's not likely to happen because she's older. And I think that they, she's basically resigned herself to, I'm just going to have to struggle the rest of the way I go. Yeah. Later on, we hear of Boaz, who seems to be a righteous man. Yep. And in that conversation where he tells uh, Ruth, I'll do right by you. Let me go try this. And there's another man. 
So then they have like a council in where they say, hey, let's go buy the property of, I think it was our brother or meaning their family relative, Elimic, you know, let's go buy it so Naomi and such can have property again. So it seems like Naomi didn't just lose her husband. She lost her property and her life, her rights and standing in the culture. So yeah. it was it wasn't that they were beggars to begin with. They were they seem to have property. And then we'll get into that later. But but it was but it's interesting because you get to see that there's definitely a different type of. Culture here. Economic and, you know, social, um, very different than ours. And and. Um, you know, in those days, your family was your retirement plan. You know, it was your your safety. Well, yeah, in, in verse 12, it says, turning, this is uh, Ruth, or no, this is Naomi speaking to Ruth and Orpah. Uh, Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them that they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay. My daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out of me, gone out against me. They lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and but Ruth clave under her. So she's basically saying, you know, there's no point in you staying. Uh, the Lord has has left me. I've lost everything, and I don't have anything to, to provide for you anymore. So it's better that you leave and go back to your people where you might have something than to stay here with me where I got nothing. And it, I think it was a very difficult thing because, you know, it says they lifted up their voice and wept again. I think they were all very much in mourning that this is a harsh reality. You know, we've lost everything. And Orpah was like, what's best for me is to go back to my family. That I have to do that. And for whatever reason, um, Ruth decided to stay. And I think it's because she genuinely knew that Naomi loved her loved them and was going to be on her own and she's like i'll, I'll stay with you right well um, I, I thought it was also interesting this is one of the times in verse 20 where someone changes their name almost in a negative way yeah or all other name changes like um israel and, and so, such are like the the lord has given me hope or or, or 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 things like that. This one, he when she they they go back to Bethlehem. Naomi says, "Call me Mara, for the, the Almighty has dealt bitterly bitterly with me. And I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why then call me ye Naomi, seeing that the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me?" And this this part is very sad, but it also made me think: Why would this scripture story be in here? And and we're going to see that, you know, her, her, Naomi doesn't get, it's not like um, Job, where everything gets restituted tenfold at the end. But we see that she will be okay, um, but it still had a hard life. And, and even, even, you know, and we also see that, like you said, I think Ruth stayed to help her because later on she is, helping gleam after the field. So in those days when they harvested the barley or the wheat, whatever, whatever was left on the ground, you could pick up as like a beggar, right? And uh, and so you know, um, Ruth would go out and gleam and collect basically their livelihood. 
you would think that Naomi's got to be older because yeah. she mentions I, I cannot take a man. And even if I could bear children at this age, you know, um, anyway. There's a, a quote by Berlin in the book Ruth and says, this is a radical thought because it signals that Ruth is changing her identity in a world where that was almost inconceivable. The ancient world had no mechanism for religious conversion or change of citizenship. The very notion was unthinkable. Religion and peoplehood defined one's ethnic identity, and this could no more be changed than the color of one's skin. A Moabite was always a Moabite wherever he or she lived, and indeed Ruth was referred to throughout this story as the Moabitess. From Ruth's point of view, she is becoming an Israelite. And to me, that's interesting because it's like when we're talking about conversion, right? We're talking about people joining the church, people joining into the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the world may still see them as, oh, but I know what you are, really. You know, you've joined this church or whatever, but I know your past. I know where you come from. And Ruth sees herself as I'm becoming an Israelite. I'm, I'm leaving. I have the chance to go back to my, my Moabite family and reclaim that heritage and whatever is else there is there. But I'm going to not do that. I'm going to join with Naomi. And, you know, the famous scripture in verse 16, entreat me not to leave thee or return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. She's a she's adopting Jehovah as her God, and she's adopting everything about that culture as hers. And even though everyone else still sees her as the Moabitess, she's like, yeah, I know what I am, though, and I know what I've what I've taken on. And to me, that's really interesting because uh, it, it's just a, a way of when we look at it in our world, are we are we able to look at ourselves, the changes we've made and kind of forsake whatever we used to be for who we want to be? Are we able to look at others and say, yeah, that guy's got tattoos all over his arms and he's probably had a hard past. It doesn't matter. What is he doing now? Who is he now? Mm. You know, what is he what is he striving to become? I, I thought it, along those lines, I thought that. Uh, this is an example of when the Lord was trying to tell Israel or even when Christ was here, like he was telling him in, in, in the in the Pharisees and Sadducees were so proud that they were children of abraham and, and the lord's like i could raise children of abraham from these rocks <laughs> he's kind of trying to tell them your lineage is not what's in question here it's your actions right you know your your lineage doesn't justify your actions in in perverting the gospel right and here we see another example where this is an outsider and in all sense in their culture it would have been you're not one of us but the lord is saying she is one of us those who want to come they can come and be part of us and so i, I really like that because there's always a misconception that uh, israelite chosen people you know like that there was already a predetermined you know and, and the lord always gives examples of when he breaks those perceptions in our minds and, and and those things and i think this one is one for me where where I could see that here's someone that the Lord said, you're one of us, you know. Um, and so it takes another righteous individual to notice that. And that's where Boaz comes in. He sees her gleaming in the field and he says, isn't this the Moabite lady? And and then um, in, in verse, in Ruth 2 verse uh, 8, he says, then Boaz said unto Ruth, hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not 
to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here and fast by, fast by my maidens. So he's like, you don't have to glean, you can come be with my maidens. And then he says, let thine eye be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they should not touch thee? And then, and then later on, he tells the young man, hey, she's going to be reaping behind you. Let a little extra, let her take some extra and don't be harsh with her. I'm, you know, it's like, it's a very generous thing where, but what I found interesting about this story was that Ruth was out there gleaming. And it was while she was gleaming that this blessing came, that the attention, that the notice happened. And it's very similar to us. Sometimes when we're in a hard spot, you may have to go gleam, you know, you may have to just pick whatever, and but just go, don't give up. And then the blessing comes, you know, and this, you know, there, there's a lot of that happens here um, in, in the story. And and, uh, and then she says in, in verse 10, she's, she falls on her face and bows herself to the ground and says, why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou should take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said to her, I have, it has fully been shown me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law and since the death of thine husband and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity and are come unto a people which thou knowest not here for. Yeah. And, and it's almost like her actions were a great testimony of her goodness. And I, and I look at that and I wonder, man, Imagine converting someone or, or making someone interested in the gospel because they see how you act. Mm-hmm. They haven't heard anything else. They're, they're not they're, because your actions are so loud that he's like and it seems like he's observed her or and even heard about her. So it's not just and later on we hear him say, and I know your reputation. You're a woman of virtue, you know, so there there's almost like. Maybe she's going against all the stereotypes of strangers in the land, you know, and and by just doing the right thing, she's winning all of these people to be like, hey, what can we do to help? And almost like her virtue and hard work is a representation of like her love for Naomi and Naomi is like, usually we cast these people out are we doing wrong? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like I, I just see a lot of social norms just being challenged here. Anyway. Yeah. There's a, there's also a quote from, from Hale in a book called lessons in womanhood. And it stood out to me because it says uh, the choice to forsake family, friends, or other familiar circumstances is a difficult choice that new converts and others sometimes make because they have gained a testimony of the truths of the restored gospel and have put their trust in the Lord. Like Ruth, they exercise great faith as they make changes to align their lives to the new truths they have been taught. There are many young women today who have been who have given up everything to join the church. The Lord is mindful of their sacrifices, and he will bless and reward them as he did Ruth of old, who was converted and followed the Lord's way without faltering. And it brings me back to, I don't even know exactly what year it was. Let's see. I believe it would have been 1983. Nope, 1981. Um, my mom, 19 years old, joined the church. And it was extremely difficult for her because she came from a very 
uh, traditionally strong Catholic background, not that they were overly religious, but that was what they were and they were not anything else. And when she expressed that she was going to be joining the church to her parents, they basically told her, you're not going to be our daughter anymore. You can live here. You can eat our food and stuff, but you're forsaking us. So you're being forsaken, too. And she went along with it anyway. She did it anyway. And how that to me, I've never had to do anything like that. And probably because she did it, I don't have to do anything like that. Not to that extent. And, um, you know, in the long run, my her mom, my abuela, ended up joining the church as well, kind of in a twist of fate. But um, and the other family members, the other two kind of warmed up to it as well. Even though they never joined the church, they were at least accepting of it. And their opinion changed because they saw her taking it seriously. And they saw her devotion to the gospel and how happy she was. And it was like, well, it can't be that bad then. And that is the exact promise that this this person's making. You know, when we when we hear about this stuff, um, about people, not just young women, right, but everyone who is trying to do better and trying to adhere more to the gospel and trying to convert even more, even if you've been born in the church, like trying to be more like the Savior, those blessings come. And it isn't always easy. And sometimes you do have to sacrifice friendships, or sometimes you do have to sacrifice some of the things that you enjoy or that you like for a bit for a better, bigger thing. And in the moment, it might seem insurmountably difficult. But in the long run, the blessings far outweigh anything you could have had on your own. And I think that's, for me, like the kindness... In all, on all the craziness of the era of the judges, like the Israelites constantly forgetting the, the Lord and worshiping idols every so often, and then these giant wars happening, and there were these little micro stories of people who were still doing great things. There were these little like microcosms of the bigger world of people saying, I'm, I'm going to actually join you and your faith, and your God is my God. And everything that that entails. And my life's going to be hard. I'm going to have to be out there gleaming in order to survive. But I'm here with you. And how many of us are willing to do that for one another? You know, that's the example it has for me. So, yeah. The next part here, it seems like Ruth is now a handmaiden into the house of Boaz. And um, he goes, she goes back and talks to Naomi and kind of says... Hey, um, like in verse two of, of Ruth chapter three, is not Boaz our kindred, with uh, with whose handmaiden that was? Behold, he widoweth barley at tonight in the threshold floor. Watch thyself. So anyway, so here Naomi is now. Oh, so Boaz is showing kindness to us, and then she kind of tells Ruth, "Here are the social practices by which you can." Uh, Basically, ask him out on a date. What it seems like to me, um, and let him know that you know why don't you and I get married, right? And it and again, like um, it, it sounds weird, you know. You have to go lie at his feet, uncover his feet, and then and then in verse five, just Ruth just says, "All that thou sayest unto me, I will do." Meaning, these are also new practices and may have been very alien to her. But she trusts Naomi, and 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 so 
one of my favorite verses, and now he's verse 7, when he says, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, <laughs> he went to lie down. He went to lie down at the end of a heap of corn, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down at his feet. And so when he woke up and he noticed that she was laying at his feet, he was scared because he's like, there's a woman here. And I think this had social implications that maybe they they were an item, a couple had an affair, I don't know. And and then um, in verse 11, once once she said, hey, it's just me, Ruth. In, in, in uh, verse 11, it says, And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do thee all that thou requires. For all the city in my of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And so that I like that because it seems like if she wasn't a virtuous woman, I think she could have gone and said whatever tales and would have hurt his reputation or, or whatnot. But seeing how she's a virtuous woman, he's realizing again like i can do more to help you you know and and all that thou requirest and 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 what is required in those times is that uh, the the kings the king people the, the brothers and sisters of the family help take care of these individuals and do right by them and and provide them uh, marriage and, and other things and um and, and so but then he says, uh, Terry this night, so forth and so on. But he also says, there's someone else that's maybe even a better match for you. I'll talk to them and see if they will be willing to to espouse you and buy up your property and do these things. But so if not, it's, then I'll it's, because, it's because he, the other guy is more closely related to them than Boaz. And so by law, that other guy has first dibs, so to speak, on marrying Ruth. And so Boaz is basically like, let me go see if this guy, I have to check with him first. I have to get basically his permission in order to marry you. Um, and if he doesn't, if he rejects you, then then we're good to go. But if he wants to marry you, he does have the legal claim to that, right? Um, which is interesting because the guy, <laughs> they go and they meet with him and they're like, here's all the land and stuff that comes with her. But she also comes with that. And he's like, oh, no, never mind. I don't want it. <laughs> right for whatever reason the dude's just like no no i don't want that and that that's what allows boaz to marry her it's also i, I thought it was interesting in chapter four that they use the word redeem you know and the kingsman i cannot redeem it for myself lest i mar my own inheritance redeem thou my right to thyself for i cannot you know and um then there's weird things. Man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. Money <laughs> of Israel. Yeah, there's a thing about that as well from the Jewish Study Bible. It says Boaz implies the acquisition of Ruth as wife is necessarily tied to the redemption of land. The shoe represents the conveying of goods or rights from one party to another. In their view, the act symbolizes that the nearest kinsman relinquishes the obligation and the privilege of redeeming the land and marrying Ruth. So they all knew what that meant. If someone did that to me now, today, if I walked outside and they took off their shoe and handed it to me, I would be like, what the heck is going on? But back then, that was like, oh, he's giving up his claim to this symbolically with his shoe. Which, I don't know, that's one of those things that, man, oh, man, it's a good thing people studied it. Because if not, we wouldn't know what the heck that meant. <laughs> so the other interesting thing is that Ruth bears a son. And towards the end of this, there's definitely... A lineage all the way to Jesse and David that is going to come through Ruth. 
And which makes me think that some of these promises the Lord is giving, he gives to righteous people. Like the lineage is important, but what makes it important is that they're righteous. You know, where just the lineage alone without the righteousness might not be that meaningful, if that makes sense, right? Okay. <coughs> Let's talk about Samuel. So the story with Samuel starts with his mom, Hannah, who is not able to have children. And she promises the Lord that if she's able to have a son, that she will devote her, that son, she will give that son to the Lord. And what that means back then isn't just like, oh, he's going to, you know, serve a mission someday. It means literally at age three or so, he's going to go live in the tabernacle for the rest of his life. And most likely continue to be raised and taught by the priests and by the people, other people who work there. Some of them were women that attended the, the doors of the tabernacle. And that's how he'll be raised from then on. So she's even saying, I just want to have a son, knowing that she's probably not going to have a lot of time with him anyway. She'll probably see him once a year or so after he goes to the tabernacle. But it's like her, her way of uh, showing the Lord not only that she's committed to the Lord, but also like, if I'm given this blessing, this is what I would do in return. You know, it, there's definitely a. This is definitely a culture that values men much more. They have more social standing, and so for a wife not to bear sons is kind of a big deal. Yeah, and then in whether whether right or wrong, right? There's a lot of women we've seen in the scriptures that they are barren, and it's a great burden. It's a great trial of their faith, right? In our day, that still continues, right? Um, maybe not for the same social reasons, like uh, in social and family and financial security. It's actually more of a tax to have children now than it is a benefit back then because they could work and you could sell them off, I guess, to each other and get camels. I don't know. But um, the part I really like about this story is Eli. When he noticed that she's she's praying and her lips are not moving, <laughs> in verse 4, Eli said unto her, How long will thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And it's like a, she just got reproved, right? And Hannah answered his very respectfully, no, my lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunken neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured my soul before the Lord. So the reason I like this is because this is a clear misunderstanding that has occurred. Eli is righteous. He's a man of God. You know, he's a prophet or whatever, right? Hannah is also righteous and doing the right thing. Just by human happenstance. I think you're drunk. You should stop drinking. Put it away from you. You know? <laughs> now, there's plenty of opportunity for her to say, I am here pouring my heart out. And you, if you had the Spirit of the Lord, you would have known. You, you're not a good bishop. I'm not coming back to church. <laughs> How you know? dare you? Yeah. Instead, she says, no, I'm just very sorrowful. And then, so, and then in verse 7, Eli answers to say, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked him. So, Eli almost can still bless her, even though he's imperfect. 
he didn't know all the situations. He didn't have um, the the spirit just tell him, oh, just tell this woman. Like I like it because it's kind of messy, and it's more representative of our lives and the mis happenings that happen just by being human, just by being different, by assumptions. It didn't make one person a sinner. It didn't make another one more righteous than the other. It was just the way it was. And these kind of interactions, I think, are a lot more common in the gospel and in our daily lives, where two people are trying to do the best they can. This person's trying to do their calling. You're trying to be a good student, and something happens, and they call you out on something, and it wasn't accurate. We can continue, and the blessing can still occur, and it wasn't the end of the world. I don't know. I really, I just really like that because I thought to myself, man, if it was me, and I was heartbroken, and they just think I'm just drunk, <laughs> that would be so offensive, you know? Way to, you know, think whatever of me, right? You know, like you could, you could spin up a lot of insults and injuries to which you would never come back, but it actually works in his favor, and actually, Lee, Eli recognizes hmm may god bless you with whatever's going on right and um anyway and then you come to find out that eli would actually do the raising of this miracle boy you know and teach him and then his own children are going to not follow his ways and he even received a revelation being told on the same day your sons are going to get their come up come up in this you know kind of <laughs> and then uh Samuel is there and he's young, but he hears a voice and it's Eli who trains him, you know, and all of this from a point where you thought his mom was drunk. You know, it's like that's what I like about it. It's like the Lord is showing us that if we allow us to be humble and even receive correction from the Lord's appointed individual, that is wrong. And we just say, hey, you know what? That's not what's going on, you know. So many times we make these assumptions that because he's a prophet, he should have had it. And because he's a prophet, his children shouldn't be wicked also. And and if and if these things happen, then he's not a prophet and the Lord's not here and the scriptures aren't true. It's actually we're giving him the opposite. It's like double jeopardy. He 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 doesn't read people's minds. Guess what? Right. And his kids aren't listening and aren't good on top of that. But he's still the prophet, you know. Yeah, I, there's a couple of things about this story that stand out to me as well. Um, number one is that we rarely talk about Hannah's husband. But she had a husband, yeah. Elkanah, who um, was going to to go to the tabernacle. It says in verse 21 of Samuel 1, And the man of Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, and he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, do what seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou have weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. We just talked about how important it is to have sons. We just talked about how important descendants are. Why is this guy so willing to give up this child? And I think it's because he bought into the, her promise as well. He knew my wife wants a son. She's made this covenant with the Lord that if I'm given a son, I will give him back to you to serve you. And he went along with it. That's an underappreciated aspect of this story, I think, because he could have said, "Uh, no, we need this son for the following reasons. I need an heir. I need this and that. I need another worker. I need whatever. And instead he was like, "Okay, we've you've made that you've made that commitment to the Lord. 
We've been blessed with a son. And then he even says, do what seemeth thee good. He trusts his wife. Do what you think is the right thing. And I look at that and I think, man, how difficult would that be as a, the, from a father's standpoint to just be like, oh, yeah, okay, you, you promised that you'd give our son away to the tabernacle? Cool. Whatever you think is good. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of an underappreciated thing uh, of this story that Elkanah is, is trusting enough and, and on the same page with his wife enough to at least uh, go along with it. It's also like you think about why they would want a son. And it's like you're not going to get any of those benefits. Unless you wanted to do with him, you know, you don't get any of that. But what the Lord ends up doing with Samuel is he becomes a righteous king, right? Yeah. Actually. Um, The successor. It's interesting in chapter three, verse one. Uh, the second half of it, and it said, well, the, the verse says, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And what that means is at the time, there was no established prophet. Um, they did not have the ongoing revelation of having a prophet present. They had the, the tabernacle and they had individual revelation, but they did not have a prophet that spoke for the people to the people. and that changes um, in the in the subsequent verses. You know, they go to sleep and the Lord calls to Samuel and he answers, here am I. And he goes to Eli. Here am I, for thou callest me in verse five. And he said, I called not, lie down again. And he went and lay down. He was probably like, dude, why are you waking me up? You know, like, go, go lay down. I didn't say anything. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son. Lie down again. Like, I did not call you. Please stop bugging me. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And this is really crucial, that phrase right there. Samuel did not yet yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. He's still young, I think, to the point where we're still just kind of raising you. You haven't been taught all the ways of the gospel, all the ways of the scriptures. You know, he's in primary. I don't know how old he is, but he's young. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. At this point, I think he's like, hmm, something's up here. Because this kid's not going to come here three times for no reason. And then verse 9, Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went down to in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, speak for thy servant heareth. This is the first time, really, that I think he's being taught. This is the Lord, and this is what how you should act towards him. When he calls, you answer. You didn't know that that was a thing, but now you do. And so when he calls you this time, I want you to answer. And then in verse 20, and all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And I think... It's interesting that not only did everyone recognize this as a calling, but also Eli had to help him understand you're being called right now by the Lord to be the prophet. And he even recognizes it himself. This kid is not just another boy to be a servant. You know, I need to start training him to be what he will become. If he's going to be called to be prophet, that's my responsibility to teach him from then on. Um, It's kind of an interesting 
a lot of little things in there. You know, there wasn't a prophet. He hadn't really been taught much about the ways of the Lord. And then as soon as he's called, it's like, oh, this is happening now. You know. I can't tell if Eli did something wrong, but when the Lord's like, I will judge his house for iniquity. His kids are all in. Are, are, kids are bad, but yeah. Eli himself it doesn't never really reveal his standing, but he was there doing what he was supposed to be doing, right? Yeah. Um, Chapter eight is really where we start get back in, getting back into the meat of it. And Samuel's basically told that he's going to be a, a judge over Israel. And the people are like, we want Samuel to be the king, right? And it's like, we, we, we've we had issues with kings in the past. I don't know if we really want to go down this road with kings. But uh, the, the, the Lord reveals to Samuel in chapter 9 that Saul is to be king. And so that Samuel can still do the, it's kind of like the judges, reign of the judges and the prophet in the Book of Mormon, where you have like an administrator, ruler, and then you have like an ecclesiastical leader. And so they have a prophet and they really want a king and Saul's a good guy. And so the Lord's like, Saul should be king. But things don't go well for Saul in the long run. Um, he kind of does some stuff after being anointed king and after uh, taking that responsibility. He kind of doesn't live up to the expectation. Um, and we can jump all the way to chapter 13 uh, in verses 8 and 9. Um, it said, and he tarried seven days according to the set time that Saul had appointed. But Samuel came not unto came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he burnt the, the burnt offering, and he offered the burnt offering. And I guess he was annoyed that Samuel was taking so long to get there. Once again, the two leaders, right? They have their different roles. One is a prophet, one is a king, and the king's like, where is the prophet? This is taking forever. You know what? Just bring it to me and I'll do it. Yeah. And um, there's a, a a quote in the book articles or by Elder Uchtdorf, Matter of a Few Degrees, his talk, I think, or maybe it's a book. Um, he said, Saul gathered the people together and did something he had no priesthood authority to do. He offered the sacrifice himself. And then Elder James E. Talmadge explained that unauthorized ministrations of priestly functions are not alone invalid, but also grievously sinful. In his dealings with mankind, God recognizes and honors the priesthood established by his direction and countenances no unauthorized assumption of authority. Saul forgot that he occupied the throne, wore the crown, and bore the scepter. These insignia of kingly power gave him no right to officiate even as a deacon in the priesthood of God. And then President Uchtdorf goes on um, to say the prophet Samuel recognized a critical weakness in Saul's character. When pressured by outside influences, Saul did not have the self-discipline to stay on course, trust the Lord and his prophet, and follow the pattern God had established. Saul's failure to hold fast to the counsel of the prophet was just a little longer, may seem minor, but even small errors over time can make a dramatic difference in our lives. And that's how apostasy happens, right? Where it's like, here's the right way to do things. Oh, gosh, it's taking a really long time. I'll just do it this time. And then it's like, well, does, does Samuel have to be here every time? Or can I just do it from now on? You know, and little by little things change. And yeah, it, it becomes 
you never had the authority to do this in the first place and now you're you've changed the way we do this sacrifice forever and it really it resulted in his uh rejection by the lord of being king he was basically told you know um verse 13 yeah it it did not it did not go well for him from then on so so finally shows up we've been waiting for him forever right <laughs> kidding uh i mean samuel shows up and said to saul that has done foolishly that has not kept the commandments of the lord thy god which he commanded thee for now would the lord have established thy kingdom upon israel forever meaning you had the potential you know it, it's almost like it, there goes again the whole predestination thing that that can get murky it's like i think saul had the ability to be a righteous king yep. and therefore he but through time and power and impatience or whatever he kind of squandered that and then in verse 14 he says but now thy kingdom shall not continue and the lord has sought him a man after his own heart and the lord has commanded him to be captain over his people because thou has not kept that which the lord has commanded thee and samuel anyway we can keep going but it, it was yeah that's that's interesting um because we're gonna see kind of the same thing with david <laughs> yeah that happens david's gonna come into the picture um and i think he is that captain and he is loved by the people but then saul cannot really come to terms with with this problem and then saul and david are going to get in friction and then ultimately david is going to rise to be king but then he's also going to fall away into <laughs> realms he should enough which it all comes back to almost like king benjamin and his wisdom where he's telling them um is it king benjamin or Mosiah? We're telling them you shouldn't have kings anymore. You know? Yeah. How how much wickedness? And it almost seems like all of Israel is swayed by these key leaders. Like, but we know that that's not true. We just read the story of Ruth, where there were individuals, regardless of what's going on around them, that continue to live the gospel and carry the the, the commandments the best they can and receive their blessings. It's not all just a story of one nation. You know, there are a lot of individuals in this. Um, in in chapter 15 verse 22 is a really important principle as well it says and samuel said half the lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the lord behold to obey is better than to sacrifice is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of the ram of rams mm-hmm. and it, there's a a quote from burgess in new insights into the old testament he says the ordinance of sacrifice which looked forward to the atonement of the savior was later replaced by the sacrament ordinance. It is important to partake of the sacrament, but without obedience to the gospel, the ordinance is meaningless and can even be detrimental. Mm-hmm. And this is the principle that he's teaching. You know, it's like, yeah, the sacrifice is important. And yeah, I took a long time to get there. And I get why you might have felt motivated that we need to carry this out. It's an important thing that we do. But obedience to the gospel, first and foremost, is what makes that sacrifice mean something. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just a ritual right it's, it's just a, a habit it's interesting because i think this is another opportunity where saul has the option or he has a mind of his own to do his own thing and and um so in verse 7 saul goes to war with these amalekites and he took the king aga alive and utterly destroyed the people 
But Saul and the people spared Agad and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and, and refused, they did destroy. Then came the voice of the Lord Samuel saying, It repent of me that I have set up Saul to be king. Return it back from... So, so basically, he didn't obey the commandment. The commandment was go in there and destroy everything. And that seems very harsh. And I'm sure there's more to that story. But what what the, the I think the sin that's happening here is it, it almost feels to me like like you say, like there's a lack of obedience, but then there's also this greed that occurred in this war. And and I think the Lord is kind of saying, My army is not gonna march for greed. You know? And if we start doing that, then we're going to start shortcutting everything and heading down a path that we shouldn't have, right? And so when Samuel, in verse 12, rose early in the morning and went to Saul, and he told Saul, saying, hey, Saul, uh, you know, you've gone through all these places, but uh, what meaneth these, you know, and basically, um, I'm just reading super fast. Okay, verse 21, 20 and 21, <laughs> verse 19. And and he says, Wherefore then didst thou not obey, obey the voice of the Lord, Lord, but thou didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto him, Yea, I have actually obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way the Lord sent me, and have brought Agat the king, and have utterly destroyed the, the Amalekites. And the people took the spoils, sheep and oxen, and sheep things amongst that they could find were utterly destroyed and to sacrifice them to the Lord. And that's what Samuel says, hath the Lord, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken to the battle land. And that, that's such a crucial scripture because, because I, I, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I think, hmm, if I win the lottery, imagine all the tithing I could and this is that exact same sentiment. If if I just bend this rule, imagine all the good I could do then, you know? Right. And um and the honest truth is is the reason why Saul is doing this is because he caught caught red handed. You know? His intent was to loot from the beginning and to take the riches, right? Um it wasn't to to maybe not so much to defend their country or to obliterate this threat or whatever, right? Right. And then in verse 13 is interesting. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And it's, it's it, again, like, I think Saul had every opportunity. He wasn't destined to be like this. But I think the Lord repeatedly tried to warn him and correct him, and he wouldn't take it. And so ultimately, Samuel is saying, hey, this is all coming to an end, you know? Yeah, and then he kind of goes on as they're moving past Saul a little bit, and he's going to to get Jesse in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. Um, there's a, a really interesting thing here as well. It says, And it came to pass that they were come, and he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, 
because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For the Lord looketh on the outward appearance. But the Lord look for the world. Uh, sorry. For man looketh on the outward appearance. But the Lord looketh on the heart. And this is going to be really important when we get to David and Goliath. Right. Um, when he's talking about don't worry about how, how what his stature is like. Whether that's you know physical stature or status maybe in society. Don't don't look at all this stuff. Um, I don't see things the way you see things. I see things differently. And there's a quote by Elder Uchtdorf. He says, Heavenly Father's interest in you does not depend on how rich or beautiful or healthy or smart you are. He sees you not as the world sees you. He sees you as you really are. He sees who you really are. He looks on your heart. God does not look on the outward appearance. I believe that he does not care one bit if we live in a castle or a cottage, if we are handsome or homely, if we are famous or forgotten. Though we are incomplete, God loves us completely. Though we are imperfect, he loves us perfectly. I think it means a lot to know that the Lord is not like the world. And that there's a difference there. That the world will uphold people that um, have a certain appearance or have a certain, uh, I don't know, that they try to be, they value things differently than the Lord does. And that means a lot when it comes to David. Because David is not much to look at by all accounts, (laughs) you know. He's kind of a little dude. Um, he's really young when he kind of comes to the forefront, when, when Goliath comes around. He's just a shepherd. Uh, there's nothing about him that people would be like, oh, that's our guy. You know, even he tries to put on armor and can't really handle it and is opts to not wear it instead because it's too much. Um and it's interesting because it's very contrary to what you think a hero would be like. Well, I also, how many, Jesse, how many sons does it say he had? I thought it was a pretty high number. Seven, seven sons. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I'm still thinking about Samuel because he's being told, hey, go to Jesse in whatever town this is. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yeah, he's a Bethlehemite. And among his son, I will provide a king for you. Okay, so he doesn't know it's David. Right. Go to Jesse, there's David. Here's the GPS coordinates. <laughs> and then he talks to David and gets the best information possible. Hey, the Lord sent me one of your sons could be king. And that's when the father himself is like, hey, what about, um, what's his, El- Eliab, Eliab. Right. Surely he's the one. And that's when he says, well, actually, no. Uh, maybe physical appearance, maybe he's tall, handsome, whatever. This definitely is not it. I'll let you know once I do a little bit more understanding. But he shares this principle that uh, the Lord hasn't said that Eliab is, and it appears that that would be whom everybody would want. Uh, but uh, we'll, we shall see, right? And um, and I think that's also interesting because Samuel himself is still acting on faith even though he's a great prophet, even though he's spoken to the Lord many times, the Lord continues to, hey, do this, and he goes and does it. Okay, now go check his sons, okay. And then even the father, nope, I at least know that that's not him, you know. And 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 I don't know, I, I just, I'm fascinated by that a little bit. Well, in chapter 17, verse 26, when David shows up to the battlefield, right, it says, And David spake unto the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to kill to the man that killeth this Philistine. They're talking about Goliath, who's out there challenging the whole army. And taketh away the reproach from Israel. 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, there is Eliab again, the eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And this is where, this is like typical older brother to younger brother behavior here. He's like, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Because he's like, David's sitting there going like, who is this guy? I don't care how big he is. We're the, we're the army of the Lord. Shouldn't we just be able to go and crush this guy? And Eliab's like, look, man, <laughs> why camest thou, thou down hither? And whom thou hast left with those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou might see the battle. You just want to come see the action, kid. Where, who's watching this sheep? You know, like, <laughs> why are you here? And David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And that question to me is a very interesting question. Because uh, once again, from Burgess's book, New Insights in the Old Testament, he says, David's comment, is there not a cause, suggested that there are times when all of us should stand up and be counted on the side of truth and righteousness. Sometimes God expects us to stand up for the cause of truth and righteousness and fight such things as pornography, immorality, bigotry, and injustice in our neighborhoods and communities. In David's case, the Philistines were mocking God and his covenants and were striving to take away his people's agency and freedom. And so he's basically saying, like, if not now, when are we supposed to stand up? What cause would make us stand up and go fight? This little kid comes, you know, and... And kind of calls them all out, saying, why are we afraid? I find it interesting. There's a parallel, I think, here between Laman and Lemuel and Nephi. Because mm. some of the same resentment or accusations that his older brother Eliab has to Dave, David for doing what's right and having his heart in the right places. I know thy pride, thy naughtiness of heart. <laughs> you know, And it's very similar to in our day there's a phrase that just rubs me the wrong way, which is when people are like, oh, people are so judgy. Oh, they don't judge me or, or, you know, and there is that. There are people that criticize people unduly and, and, and judge others. But there's also, you're, if you're always leading with that, I think you're speaking to a discomfort within yourself. You know, and I think what Eliab is doing here to Dave is he's actually projecting his own pride and his own naughtiness of heart and vanity, maybe, and thinks that his brother suffers the same ailments he does, you know, and that's how I'm going to deconstruct him. Same thing with Lemon and Lemuel. You think you're better than us, Nephi? You think, and it's like, no, actually, you're the ones that think you're better than him. You actually think that you're better than our father for not even listening to him, you know? You know, and and I feel like that there's still remnants of this in our day manifest through some of the same pride that we have. Well, to think about like Goliath, it says he's been out there every single day calling out, you know, send me your best guy. Who's going to come fight me for 40 days, which biblical terms just means many days. Right. Um, but he's out there for a long time. And no one is, everyone's kind of sitting there like, this dude's nine feet tall. Like, who's going to go fight this guy? We don't really have anybody like that. And <clears throat> then here comes David, little shepherd boy, and he's like, what are we doing? Why is no one out there? Who is this guy to, to call us out like this? And his older brother is kind of putting, trying to put him in his place. You know, why are you here? Why aren't you watching the sheep? 
instead of saying, oh, crap. Yeah, you know what? We don't have anything to fear. We are the army of the Lord. He's instead turning it on him, being like using that, that feeling of pride to make David feel ridiculed until David's like, fine, I'll go do it. And um, they're kind of like, well, OK, go, little guy, go do it then. See what happens. And um, like he tries to to go out and um, he collects some stones, right? Five stones. He's got his sling. That's all his only weapon. And once again, all of these things that are symbolic of uh, weakness or, or meekness, that he didn't go out there and say, okay, give me your biggest sword and all the armor and give me a chariot so I can ride by and slice his legs. You know, nothing. It was like, I'll just go with what I have. I'm going to go and, and pick out some five smooth stones, um, and those will be the ones I'll use for this, right? And it's interesting. There's a, a quote by President Monson um, who says, just as David went to the brook, well, we might go to our source of supply, the Lord. What polished stones will you select to defeat the Goliath that is robbing you of your happiness by smothering your opportunities? May I offer suggestions? The stone of courage will melt the Goliath of fear. The stone of effort will bring down the Goliath of indecision and procrastination. The Goliaths of pride, envy, and lack of self-respect will not stand before the power of the stones of humility, prayer, and duty. We don't have a nine-foot-tall something guy calling us out to go and fight, but we do have a world that kind of questions our, our reasons for doing things. That, And even in our individual lives, there are just challenges that are in our way that seem insurmountable, and they are our Goliaths. And I think his point is, if you have courage, effort, humility, prayer, and duty, if you use those five stones, so to speak, in your sling, um, there's nothing that you can't overcome. Just like David took what he had and did his best, and he vanquished this giant guy and really was inspiring enough to the entire army of Israel that they made him king, that they saw that he was who he was. They saw him as a, a man of God and someone who could be a leader. Instead of just being back there like, oh, I don't know who's going to go fight him. I'm, I don't want to fight him. Right? Yeah. I, I think along the lines of what you were saying, you know, David used what he his strength. Which they didn't think would be efficient in a battle was actually very efficient. <laughs> you know, yeah, I only took one it, stone. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like, you know, this these warriors had this currency or this way of thinking and the Lord was showing them there's another way. It's a lot more efficient, and I don't need a bloodthirsty warrior to do it, right? And a lot of the times, uh, the Lord's way would appear ridiculous to the world. It would appear like, what? You're saying, what? The family is the most important unit? But all families are broken. None of them are perfect. How could you say something like that? You're just hate other people don't you you know like whatever it may be right and, and um no but he's saying and, and it kind of goes back to dr Cohen's by by simple things great things come about um and we know david we'll get later on he he's really a great guy does a lot of good things for israel does some bad things but luckily through dr Cummins we hear that you know he paid for those things and he's also found his own glory you know at the end of all of this right and then he becomes king um he becomes friends with jonathan 
he um, actually marries one of Saul's daughters, which is kind of a twist of fate because Saul doesn't like him after he does all this stuff and starts getting more fame and more attention. But Israel found someone that they could follow. They found someone who could be a leader. And it was the Lord point, pointing Samuel in the right direction and then allowing people to take advantage of their opportunities. David had an opportunity and he was inspired to do it. And yeah, you know, later on in his life, he had some some questionable things that he did. But in this moment, as far as we've read so far, like he's he's exemplified what we should be doing. We should be seeking out opportunities to stand up for for the Lord, stand up for the gospel and not be ashamed or afraid of the Goliaths that are out there. Become an engaged learner. Immerse yourself in the scriptures to understand better Christ's mission and ministry. Know the doctrine of Christ so that you understand its power for your life. Internalize the truth that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to you. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study, which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost. It will help you know the mind and will of the Lord to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.